The 60th U.S. presidential election has thrust the nation into an unprecedented tempest of uncertainty, presenting a high-stakes battle where the very core of American democracy hangs in the balance. This epic showdown, the most crucial election since 1864, unfolds as a narrative of monumental proportions with the specter of authoritarianism looming on the horizon. The first presidential election, where the de facto standard bearer for one of the two major political parties, the Republican Party, faces 91 felony charges. The first presidential election since 1892, where two presidents face off in a general election. The Guardian Against Cyber Threats, the Titans tasked with ensuring the sanctity of our elections, Jen Earnestly of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency and General Paul Nakasom, the head of U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency, boldly declared that this year's ballot will be the Fort Knox of elections. Despite foreign nations eyeing interference, their conviction is unwavering. The American people should have absolute confidence in the integrity of our election infrastructure, according to these officials. Amidst the political maelstrom, a Quinnipiac University poll unveiled a seismic gender gap, positioning women as the potential game changers in the 2024 election. President Joe Biden's slight lead over former President Donald J. Trump sets the stage for a turning tide on the political battleground. As we navigate through these political currents, we delve into the complexities of former President Trump's mission to influence border security negotiations. His clash with Teamsters president, Sean O'Brien, underscores the intricate dynamics within the political arena, adding another layer to this evolving narrative. The political landscape takes a historic turn as House Republicans advance articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The 18 to 15 vote in the House Homeland Security Committee accuses Mayorkas of breach of trust and willful and systematic refusal to comply with the law, raising questions about the impact on border security negotiations and the Biden administration strategies. In the midst of these political maneuvers, Nikki Haley, Trump's sole primary opponent, faces probing questions about her birth name by Trump and went on Breakfast Club to say that the next female president is either going to be herself or Kamala Harris. She also went as far as to say that a Kamala Harris presidency should send chills down your spine. The tension escalates as the political arena becomes a stage for fierce ideological clashes. Adding a legal twist to the narrative, a jury ordered former President Donald J. Trump to pay $83.3 million to writer E. Jean Carroll for defamation remarks made during his presidency. On a night like this, I'm so grateful to have presidential historian and creator of the Keys to the White House model, Professor Alan Lickman. We're graced by this political luminary in our midst, a man who's accurately predicted every presidential election since 18, since 1984. Not 18, I'm not that old, please. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, I want to ask you, because you, you sent me a private message, and I'm so glad you did, about your work, your efforts, in an amicus brief that has been signed by 25 of the nation's leading historians. And this brief in the Trump disqualification case argues for the applicability of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the President of the United States. It, it asserts specifically that this section doesn't just target ex-Confederates, but it also applies to future insurrectionists. Could you elaborate on this amicus brief for our audience? Yeah, I had the idea for this amicus brief because constitutional questions are fundamentally historical. You know, the conservatives on the Supreme Court claim to be originalists. They want to understand the original intent of provisions of the Constitution. To do that, you have to look at the historical evidence and provide historical analysis. And that is exactly what 25 of the nation's leading historians have done. I'm not sure there's ever been so many 
distinguished historians ever signing on to a uh, amicus brief for the Supreme Court. So here's what we found. Number one, we found that Section 3 clearly was intended to cover the president. This issue directly came up during the Senate debates on the 14th Amendment in 1866. A Democratic senator, remember back in those days, Democrats were the pro-Southerners, Republicans were the pro-Civil Rights Party. Uh, a Democrat from my home state of Maryland raised the question, the president isn't specifically named in the disqualification clause section three, why isn't he included? And Senator Lot Morrill, a Republican, a strong supporter of Reconstruction, the 14th Amendment, corrected him and say, yes, the president is included under the phrase that refers to officers of the United States. That covers the president. And in those debates, Senator Johnson said, oh, you're right. I am corrected. The president is covered. And no senator arose to challenge that. Then a few years later, after ratification of the 14th Amendment, you had a law being passed in Congress to give amnesty to ex-Confederates so they no longer would be disqualified. Well, the decision makers decided not to give amnesty to every single ex-Confederate. And one of those they excluded was former Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Why? Because again, they recognized that under Section 3, Davis was excluded from running for president of the United States. But if they gave him amnesty and relieved the disqualification, he could then run for president. If Section 3 didn't cover the president in the first place, all of that would have been irrelevant. Next, uh, the um, Section 3 was designed not just to cover the times, but to guard in perpetuity against future insurrectionists. That again was explicitly raised and decision makers said, yes, we put this in the constitution rather than statute law so that it would last uh, indefinitely. And they rejected versions of section three that would have limited its uh, scope. Finally, uh, we established that Section 3 was self-executing, didn't require an act of Congress, didn't require a conviction, much like other disqualifications under the Constitution for age, residence, or birth. In fact, again, going back to Jefferson Davis, he recognized that he was disqualified along with all the other ex-Confederates who had sworn an oath to the U.S. Constitution on the moment that the states ratified the 14th Amendment. In fact, he tried to use his instant disqualification to quash his treason prosecution, claiming that that would constitute double jeopardy. So we think uh, that the historical record is very clear. President is covered. The amendment applies to the present, and it doesn't require any additional action by Congress or a court conviction. Now, Professor, Chris Christie, the most vocal, most prominent Trump critic in this class of Republican 2024 primary contenders, himself said that the courts have no business taking Trump off the ballot, that that should be left to the voters. Nikki Haley repeated that. And you had other prominent figures of the Republican Party making that argument. What is your response to that argument? It's a complete non sequitur. A constitutional disqualification means 
that the voters don't get to decide. This is something that occurs prior to a candidate being on the ballot. If you're not of age, if you didn't have the residency requirements, if you weren't a natural born U.S. citizens, the voters don't decide whether you're to become president or not. You are disqualified before the voters cast any ballot. And Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is absolutely no difference. It's a constitutional disqualification, which means you don't get to uh, appear on the ballot to have the voters decide. Look, you may remember, you probably do, who was it that for five years said that Barack Obama was disqualified to be president because falsely he was born in Africa, not the U.S. And of course, that was Donald Trump. And now he and his allies have completely reversed their position. A lot of conservative viewers of mine, especially now that I'm on TikTok, have taken to the platforms that, that I have to say, Professor Alan Lichten was inaccurate in saying that we were this close to losing our democracy because we were never a democracy to begin with. We're a republic. Yeah, that, that's a misunderstanding. We are a democratic republic. Officers of the government are not selected by birth, by inheritance, by acts of God, by violence. They are chosen democratically by the voters. That was the great innovation of the American Constitution, the sovereignty of the people. And the people would choose uh, those who would represent themselves in government. And so if we lose the sovereignty of the people, we're no longer a functioning democratic republic. Professor, if you could, I know you've been on the show several times now, but for viewers who may be viewing you for the first time, walk us through briefly the keys that have guided you accurately, faithfully since 1984 and retrospectively. And if you could also answer whether or not the current order from the, the civil court that just concluded this past Friday that required Donald J. Trump to pay $83.3 million to E. Jean Carroll for defamation. Is that going to have any impact on his chances heading into this November? The keys provide a fundamental alternative to polling and punditry, which have been wrong so often. For example, in 2016, many of them were wrong in 2012 in predicting Mitt Romney rather than uh, Barack Obama. What the keys suggest is instead of looking at polls or listening to pundits, we should probe the underlying structure of how presidential elections really work. And that structure is presidential elections are essentially votes up or down on the strength and performance of the White House party. Voters decide whether the party holding the White House deserves four more years or not. And I developed the 13 keys to give precision, predictive precision to that insight. And as you mentioned, I developed them in 1981, retrospectively going all the way back to the horse and buggy days of politics and the election of Abraham Lincoln. And contrary to a lot of rumors, I did not know him. I was close, but I didn't. Uh, and retrospectively, the keys have been right since I predicted Ronald Reagan's re-election in an article in April of 1982, more than two and a half years before the election, and at a time when we were in the midst of the worst recession since the Great Depression, and 
Ronald Reagan's polling numbers were as bad as Jimmy Carter's at that point in his presidency. And of course, when I predicted Donald Trump in 2016, I went against all of the conventional wisdom, and that did not make me very popular in 90% Democratic Washington, D.C., where I teach at American University. And the 13 keys are 13 true-false questions that gauge the strength and performance of the White House party. An answer of true favors their re-election. An answer of false favors an earthquake uh, turning out of the party holding the White House. So six strikes and you're out. And there are four political keys pertaining to midterm elections, incumbency, internal party battles for the White House party, third parties, two economic keys, keys related to social unrest, policy change, scandal, foreign policy successes and failures, and only two keys have anything to do with the candidates, and they are very high threshold keys. They ask, is the White House party candidate one of these once in a generation charismatic, inspirational candidates like Ronald Reagan for the Republicans or John F. Kennedy for the Democrats? And is the, since they're all phrased in a way that an answer of true favors the White House party, is the challenging party candidate not one of these once in a generation inspirational type of candidates? And if six or more of these questions are false, then the White House party is a predicted loser. Otherwise, they're a predicted winner. The recent verdict adds to the legal challenges Trump is facing. How might ongoing legal issues influence the public perception of Donald J. Trump as the standard bearer of his party and the Republican Party in general? It makes no difference according to the keys. The only key that is affected by anything the challenging party does is key 13. The challenging party candidate is not charismatic or a national hero. And I have already rated that key as true. Because while Trump is a certainly excellent showman, has a lot of pizzazz, he appeals to a narrow base. Unlike, for example, Ronald Reagan, who appealed broadly, a lot of Reagan Democrats. I've yet to find any Trump Democrats or Franklin Roosevelt on the Democratic side who, you know, brought in huge swaths of the American people. So that key is already tallied in favor of the White House party. So nothing that Trump does affects it. But let me say this. You know, as I mentioned, the keys are based on history. They're a very robust historical system. Retrospectively, they go all the way back to 1860. Prospectively, they go all the way back to 1982, predicting 1984. But it is always possible that there could be such a cataclysmic historical breakthrough that it changes the pattern of the keys. And certainly uh, an unprecedented felony conviction for a major party candidate could have the potential to be a break in the historical pattern. But for my predictions, I'm still sticking uh, to the keys. The last time I had you on, Professor, of course, you have not made your prediction yet for 2024, but you said you were looking specifically and primarily at two keys, the economy, and the foreign policy key. Now, the economy has shown signs of improvement since we last discussed the issue. The foreign policy key has added a new element with the ongoing war with Israel and Hamas. A lot of protesters have been calling adamantly 
for a ceasefire, interrupting President Biden's speeches for the 2024 campaign. How does the progressive call for a ceasefire in light of the fact that the state of Michigan is home to the the, the most American Muslims, I believe, in the United States? You had the the mayor of Dearborn say that he felt betrayed and, and actually chose not to attend a meeting with President Biden because of his policies in that particular region. Yeah. Let me put this in a little bit of context. You know, there's been all this grousing about Joe Biden. You know, maybe he should step aside and let some younger candidate uh, be the Democratic nominee, as if you could control that. Could be Bernie Sanders, who's just as old, almost as old. But leave that aside. The Democrats' best chance of winning is with Biden running. Remember, one of my keys is incumbency. Biden obviously wins that. Another one of my keys is internal White House party battle. Biden wins that. That's two keys off the top that Biden wins. That means six more keys out of the remaining 11 would have to fall to predict his defeat. But Biden doesn't run. They lose the incumbency key. They lose the contest key because there's no heir apparent. So they're down two keys right off the top and only four more keys would have to fall. Now, as you say, uh, there are keys that are still fluid and we need to look to. You know, I've been saying for a long time We need to look and see whether the economy is going to tumble into recession. It's one of my keys during the election year, which could also affect my long-term economic key. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, but, uh, you know, I'd feel a little more comfortable as we got a little further into 2024. On the other hand, my two foreign policy keys, foreign policy success and failure, are looking very shaky because of... uh, the stalemated war in Ukraine and the very unpopular Israeli war against the Palestinians in Gaza. I haven't turned those keys yet, but you should be looking to the foreign policy keys. You should be looking, as always, to the economy. And of course, social unrest can burst out at any time. Republicans are trying to spin a pin a scandal on Trump. They've been monumentally unsuccessful. I've been a scandal on Biden. They've been monumentally unsuccessful so far. I don't think they'll succeed. But again, that's something to look at. So while I haven't made a prediction yet, I can guide your viewers to what you should be looking towards between now and November. But I'll expect to be making my prediction around the same time I did in 2020, around July or August, well before uh, the fall election campaign even begins. And of course, we're we're waiting with anticipation for that. But in the meantime, House Representatives is controlled by Republicans, and they have been dragging their feet on any kind of legislation that would provide continued aid to Ukraine and Israel, because they've now attached this element of border funding to that bill. If Congress fails to provide funding to these two regions, would that turn the key in a negative direction for President Biden, ultimately? It could. Uh, As Herbert Hoover, a man who should know, once said, the president gets the credit for the sunshine and the rain for the blame. If things go badly in the Middle East and Ukraine, that could turn two keys, failure and success against Biden. But here's the great irony of what the Republicans are doing. They've said, we want to have a border security bill in order to get aid to Ukraine and Israel. And it looks like there's going to be a bipartisan 
border security bill for the first time in decades coming out of the Senate. And who's come out against it? Donald Trump and his allies in Congress subverting their very own intentions of how to get aid to Ukraine and to Gaza. And apparently, you know, they don't care about solving the border crisis. They want to keep the border in chaos so they think they can use it as a club against Biden. It's one of the most cynical things I've seen in 60 years of following American politics. You know, I've always said President Biden needs to campaign against the 118th Congress the way Harry Truman campaigned against the 80th Congress of 1946, which he dubbed the Do-Nothing Congress. But at least the Do-Nothing Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act and the Marshall Plan. You have Congress that- The National Security Act, the most important National Security Act in history. It was anything but a do-nothing Congress. And the record of this Congress pales in comparison. Correct. Do you think Biden, the worst Congress ever, arguably. Do you think Biden should take that to the American people and use the bully pulpit to, to say, look, you, you talk a good game on border security, but as soon as your messiah Trump decides to say no deal for political purposes, you're not willing to even come to the table. Do you think that's yeah, going to be? Of course, you know, that's going to be an element in the campaign. But remember, this is very counterintuitive. It's hard for people to understand. According to the keys, the campaign doesn't matter. Doesn't really matter what Trump or Biden says on the campaign trail. You cannot predict an election from what happens on the campaign trail. If you were able to predict elections on that basis, Hillary Clinton should have won in a landslide in 2016. She won every debate. She had a better ground game. She raised more money. She, she was ahead on all of the issues, or at least most of them. That That isn't a predictive basis. People always ask me, you know, what should Biden do to get reelected? And my answer is always the same. Govern well. It is governance, not campaigning that counts. And what happens in Ukraine, what happens in the economy, what happens in the Middle East uh, is vastly more important than anything you're going to say in the campaign. Doesn't mean they shouldn't raise these issues. I'm not arguing that, but uh, that's not what's going to decide the election. And moreover, I've always said you should campaign on your vision in a substantive way. That way, if you win, you have a mandate to govern. And even if you lose, at least you've made your mark. You know, whoever remembers anything a traditional campaigner said. Do you remember a thing Hillary Clinton said besides the basket of deplorables? Do you remember anything Mitt Romney or John McCain or John Kerry said? Of course not. But even big time losing candidates who've run a substantive campaign have not just been footnotes to history. They've been historical movers. Barry Goldwater in 1964 lost in a landslide to Lyndon Johnson, but the forthright conservative principles that he put out have been pivotal in influencing the next generations of conservatives. Same thing on the liberal side with George McGovern, who got trounced by Richard Nixon in 1972. People remember Govern, McGovern and Goldwater and what they were stood for. Nobody remembers what traditional candidates were saying during the campaign. Michigan, the state of Michigan has always played a crucial role in recent presidential elections. Going back to the early 1960s, Jack and Bobby Kennedy were worried that George Romney was going to run because potentially right. he could take the but state. They still would have won without Michigan, by the way. 
Kennedy in 1960. <laughs> Should Democrats be concerned that President Biden could lose the state of Michigan, which is home to most Muslim Americans, because of their dissatisfaction with his policies, with the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. Now, I'm asking that in light of the fact that the alternative literally called outright for a ban on all Muslim countries. Exactly. And who propped up this horrible prime minister of Israel who's causing so many problems? The right wing. Netanyahu is a creature of Trump and Trump's allies, not of Joe Biden and the Democrats. Moreover, I saw the story just a few minutes ago on CNN, and they put up what I thought was one of the most misleading uh, statistics. And I'm a statistical expert. So they said, you know, Biden had won by about 150,000 votes and 146,000 Muslims cast votes in 2020. And that could virtually cancel out uh, Biden's win. What's the fundamental fallacy there? Not every single Muslim voted for Joe Biden, maybe 60% of them did, but that means, you know, you're talking about a 30 to 40,000 vote swing, not a 140,000 vote swing. So, you know, you really need to be careful in, uh, you know, making these kind of broad statements. And, you know, I'm not sure what Biden can do. He should not be tilting his policies because he's worried about the Muslim vote. He's got to do what's right for the country and right for the world and not worry about uh, individual subgroups within the electorate. This election is unlike anything else. And I say that in light of the fact that you have a court date calendar running parallel with a regular presidential campaign calendar, and they're now intersecting. Right after Trump won New Hampshire, he found himself facing E. Jean Carroll in court. Would this fact change anything in your analysis? As it doesn't change my keys, but as I said, things can happen outside the keys if cataclysmic enough. But I stick with my predictions. You know, leaving aside the keys, here's something astounding, Mike. Uh, you're too young, but a lot of us remember the impeachment of Bill Clinton when he had an affair with his young intern, you know, reprehensible, but it really had nothing to do with his governing the country. And the evangelicals were up in arms, thundering, saying someone engaged in personally immoral behavior should be disqualified from holding public office. We shouldn't care one whit about what his policies are if he is immoral personally he should be disqualified. Then we have Donald Trump, whose moral transgressions make Bill Clinton look like a kindergarten teacher. And all of a sudden, the evangelicals turn their own doctrine on its head and couldn't care less because Donald Trump is against gays and against abortion. In effect, what the evangelicals have done to themselves is just turn themselves into another interest group, lost all moral authority, they're now just mongering policies, no different than the Chamber of Commerce or the NRA or the AFL-CIO or the National Abortion Rights Action League. And in light of that, a lot of people are anticipating the Supreme Court to weigh in to determine whether or not Trump could be removed by the ballot by states like Colorado. How do you anticipate the court yeah. is going to rule? I think, you know, our amicus by 25 distinguished historians. You know, we've won virtually every prize for our books. We've headed every, virtually every major historical organization. 
we have proved beyond any doubt that Trump is covered under the original intent of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And if the conservatives on the court are not going to read their politics into the Constitution, but stick to constitutional analysis, then in fact, uh, Trump is subject to disqualification, no different than being disqualified because of age, residence, or natural born citizenship. It's just like any other constitutional qualification. And it's not something that the voters vote on. You don't vote on someone who is constitutionally ineligible to serve an office. And Donald Trump was the biggest exponent of that view for five years. Nikki Haley, the stars align in Nikki Haley's favor. And somehow she manages to get the nomination. She was on The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne, who has said that he regrets endorsing President Biden, someone who prides himself and whom the Black community listens to, if Nikki Haley becomes the nominee. I've always been of the opinion that even if she wins, she loses. Because I just cannot see Trump saying, well, we gave it our best shot. We're going to put our support behind our standard bearer. He's never proven himself able to do something like that. You look at how he lost to Ted Cruz in the Iowa caucus of 2016. You look at how he lost in 2020. And all of the elections after 2016, midterms, off-year elections, have lost. His candidate, his endorsed person has lost. And he's never taken responsibility for that. So if Nikki Haley becomes the responsibility for nothing. <laughs> if Nikki Haley becomes the nominee, doesn't she still lose? Trump will never support anyone but Trump for the Republican nominee. Now, she really has no chance to get nominated under the Republican primary. She's going to lose South Carolina, and that's it's going to be essentially over. She has one hope, and that is Trump gets convicted of a serious crime and the convention decides we can't go with a convicted felon, and they turn to someone else. But they may not turn to Nick Haley. I'd be very surprised for this Republican Party to nominate a woman of color. And, of course, the other hope would be if the Supreme Court, you know, decides that uh, Trump is covered under the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and can be bounced off state ballots. You have national security officials saying that this election is going to be very secure which is reminiscent of what we heard in 2020 in the aftermath when that election was being questioned. Jen Easterly of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, General Paul Nakasone, head of U.S. Cyber Command, they say that this is going to be the Fort Knox of elections. Are you concerned that we won't have people like Rusty Bowers, people of conviction, people who put the Constitution over politics? Are you concerned that we won't have people like Raffensperger in Georgia in place in this upcoming election if it's close, which it looks like is going to be a close one? Um, most crucial and close election probably since the Bush-Gore election in 2000. Are you concerned that things will get even further than they did on January the 6th? Yeah. If this I'm not willing to say it's a close election. I mean, I haven't made my call yet. A lot a lot is yet to happen. It may not be very close. Uh, but leave that aside. I'm very worried uh, that you're not going to have stalwart Republicans standing up to Donald Trump. If Donald Trump loses, you know he's not going to accept his loss. He's going to try to try to derail the process, steal the election back. The one thing that does give me some better hope is he's not the sitting president. He doesn't have the levers of power that he had in 2020 when he was still 
the president until January 20th, 2021. So, you know, he can huff and he can puff, but I'm not sure there's much he can do to steal back an election that he lost if that happens in 2024. So I want to give your view as a little bit of hope. The impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas, did that turn to scandal key? Absolutely Trump. not. First of all, it's a bogus impeachment. It, it's totally political. He's not guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. If it squeaks through the House, it'll be strictly on a partisan basis. It'll be dead on arrival in the Senate. And to turn the key, number one, it's got to directly hit the president. This doesn't. And number two, there has to be some bipartisan recognition of scandal. Uh, you know, like seven Republicans who voted to convict Donald Trump or the, you know, the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment in the House or, you know, some of the Republicans, even the first time who denounced what Donald Trump did. This, even if it advances, will be strictly on a partisan basis, will not turn a key. Well, thank you so much, Professor Lickman. I just want to put a plug in for your show that you're about to be on right now. Go and catch Professor Lickman if you love what you heard tonight. If you want to hear more, catch his YouTube platform, Professor Alan Lickman with his son, Sam. It's a dynamic program. I tune in. I'm a fan. I'm a subscriber. All um, right. 9 p.m. tonight. 9 p.m. And, and donate. And, and your question, my Please. name is we, we need the support if we want to stay on the air. We're, we don't have General Motors behind us. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Professor Lickman. It's the first time since 1892 two presidents look like they're going to be facing off against each other. So glad to have you on a night like this. Thanks for making time. My pleasure. Take care, Mike. With that being said, that's going to conclude episode 124 of the Political Mike Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>